If you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going. You don't know where you've come from. You don't know where you're going. You, you ever heard that maxim? Maybe you've used it yourself. It's meant to express something of an appreciation for the past. An appreciation that acknowledges that what's happened before shapes what's ahead. It's not an absolute statement. I mean, people often make plans and prosper without any prior knowledge, for instance, of family backgrounds or company history. But it's, it's good to have a grasp of, of roots, how things began, what things looked like before you came on the scene. You know, you and I are not the, the beginning of a thing. Most of us come in somewhere down the line. It's good for us to look back to see what preceded us so that we might look around us at present and see what might need to, to be changed to be altered, to, to realign with the original focus, the original intent, the original purpose of a thing. Well, over the next few weeks, that's what we're going to do as it relates to the church, to our church. We, we're going to look to the past, to the first church, to see what it looked like, what practices it followed, and how they might be instructive for us today as a local church in Temple Hills, Maryland. We want to know what the Bible says should mark the lives of believers together in local churches. And so starting this morning and over the next four weeks, so this morning and three weeks after, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, uh, to, to, to see what, what the Holy Spirit has to, to say to us, what is preserved for us as marks of a biblical church. We'll look at four of those over the next few weeks. And this morning, we'll look at one in particular. So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. We read, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, we'll look at and, and talk about some of the different details scattered throughout this paragraph that we just read over the next few weeks. It's those four distinctives we see in verse 42 that we'll spend the, the next four weeks explicitly talking about. All right, those four things we see summarized in verse 42, the early church devoted themselves to, number one, the apostles' teaching. Number two, the fellowship. Number three, the breaking of bread. And number four, prayers. This morning, we'll start with that first distinctive, that first mark of a church, the devotion to the apostles' teaching. And here's the, the main idea. The, the, the main thing, I think, that focus on devotion to teaching is, is meant to show us. And so the main idea of the sermon this morning 
true churches give themselves to submitting to God's true word. Where you'll find a true church, you'll find this. True churches give themselves, devote themselves, commit themselves to submitting to God's true word. And as we think about the priority of God's word in the life of the church, we'll, we'll see how God's word finds its, its priority, finds its focus in the nature of the church and in the nurture of the church. Those will be our two points this morning. Number one, the nature of the church. And number two, the nurture of the church. First, the, the nature of the church. We picked up here in Acts chapter two towards the end of the chapter. And so obviously there are some details that need to be filled in, need to be clarified. For instance, notice that the first verse 42 starts off with they. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. Well, who's the they that, that it's referring to there? Well, it's referring to the church. And just notice how the church is referenced here. It, it's not an it, but a they. The church is not primarily a place, but a people. Not simply a place to go to, but a people who do something. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. But how do these people become a people? A people committed to these things, a people committed to the apostles' teaching. Well, they become a people committed to the apostles' teaching by the apostles' teaching. Amen. Earlier in Acts 2, if you read that chapter, you should do that this, this afternoon. It's a great chapter to read. Earlier in chapter 2, God's Spirit comes upon the apostles giving them the ability to speak about Christ in the different languages of the different people gathered in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And the apostle Peter in particular gives the church's first sermon. I mean, look at Acts chapter two, back at verse 42. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter points to Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. A fact that the signs and the wonders that he did testify to. He was the one foreordained by God to suffer for sinners. The father willingly delivered up his son to be crucified and killed by men who acted out of their own malice. And Jesus willingly gave up his life into their hands. But God raised him up. According to what he promised, as Peter goes on to show by quoting several Old Testament passages that pointed to the Messiah's death and his resurrection. And now this risen Jesus is exalted as Lord over all. Peter, Peter says this in, in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And Peter places blame where blame is due at these Jews hands 
at our hands. It's our sin that put Jesus on the cross just as much as theirs. Just because we didn't drive the nails into his hands or his feet don't make us innocent. Our sins were behind the nails and the hands and the feet. Peter places blame where blame is due, but, but he points beyond their actions, beyond our actions, to the glorious person of Christ. Even though we did that, our sins did that, you sinners did that to Jesus Christ, he is risen and Lord over all. Amen. The apostle Peter preaches, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is his content. And it convicts. Look at verse 37. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and asked, what shall we do? Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. In the Bible, baptism is where your faith goes public. There's no such thing as a quiet faith or a mere personal faith. Baptism marks you off from the world as trusting in Jesus and belonging to him and his people. Amen. Repent and be baptized is a synonym for repent and believe Amen. because you show your true belief by being publicly baptized. Amen. Perhaps that's what you need to do this morning because you recognize your sins against a good and a holy God and you recognize your repeated rejection of his son, Jesus Christ. What you need to do even now is to repent and believe. Turn away from your sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That's what God is calling everyone everywhere to do. And many people do. And drop down to verse 41. We read, those who received the word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Well, to the apostles and those with them, about 120 people to make up the first church. So, so I just want to walk through that. But, but for our pur purposes, let's just reverse engineer things real quick here. How is the church birthed? Not by slick advertising or manipulative techniques or mass marketing but by God's word Amen. specifically through apostolic teaching the apostle Peter stood up and taught from God's word he preached the gospel and God's word did God's work Amen. people's hearts were transformed as they heard about Jesus uh, they were convicted of their sin. They believed the word and were baptized into the membership of the church. You see, instruction from God's word is built into the very nature of the church. No word, no life. Just as God's word gave birth to all creation, God spoke and up sprang everything. So God's word gives birth to the church. God speaks and upsprings a spiritual body, a spiritual organism, the church. No word, no church. Our very life depends on God's word. By nature, the church is a word-breathed people. And not just at the beginning of the church's existence, but continually as the church is nurtured. 
Point number two, we see the nurture of the church. The church is sustained by the same means through which it was started. The word of God being taught. I mean, you don't buy a luxury car and fill it up for the first time with premium gas. And then when it's time to put more gas in it to, to keep the thing running, you don't put gas, but coffee in it. No, you realize that, that what got that thing started off functioning well is what it continually needs. Well, what got the church started off was the word of God. And what will sustain and keep the church going is the word of God. Notice these new believers that Acts 2 Verse 41 says we're baptized into the church. Didn't hear from Peter on the day of Pentecost and then just go on with their lives. Move on to some other activity. No, they continued to attend to teaching. They devoted themselves, committed themselves continually on an ongoing basis, basis to the apostles teaching. Verse 42 says. I think we see here. That the church is to be constantly learning, constantly growing in the knowledge of God through instruction. Christianity is not a mystic religion where you grow closer to God by emptying your mind. Christianity is not a mechanical religion where you just unthinkingly go through the motions, perform certain religious tasks to attain the outcome of earning God's favor. No, Christianity is a message religion. We believe God speaks and the church fills its mind with God's word. Christianity is a religion that engages the mind, that engages the intellect. It involves teaching, instruction, learning. Words and logic are used. Tight arguments theologically are made. Christianity is not mere devotion to a deity but it's devotion driven by doctrine. All right. I mean, just notice how often in the scriptures, doxology or praise to the triune God is provoked by, preceded by a deep dive into doctrine. If you want to praise God, you have to hear about who God is. Right. You have to learn about what God desires, what God says we must do. It's not wasted to just spend our time looking at the Bible, learning deep theological truths. If you want to praise God, it won't be simply by singing certain songs. It's by believing those songs are true. Amen. You believe they're true by studying the Bible, the true word of God. The church's focus is on teaching, and preaching sound doctrine. I mean, Jesus instructed his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. Now, often we hear that, that passage, the, the Great Commission, and we focus specifically on go. We need to go a certain place. Well, oftentimes that's, that's true. It, it might involve going to a new country or a new culture, but, but the main verb there in the Great Commission is to make disciples. How? By preaching the gospel, uh, baptizing those who are converted by the gospel. But, but that's just the start of the work. Mm. Then sticking around, right. staying with those same people and teaching them God's word. That's what the apostles are doing here. That's what we're all called to do. Newborn baby Christians are made into mature disciples through devotion to God's word. 
the apostles teaching here early on would include the, the, the Old Testament and how those Old Testament passages pointed to the Jesus as the fulfillment. He was the prophet that, that Moses pointed to. He was the king that, that David foreshadowed. He was the suffering servant that Isaiah talked about. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that all the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to. Again, if you, you go back and read Peter's sermon here, you, you see how many Old Testament passages are alluded to. Peter is the first expositor of God's word. He's simply taking what's in the Old Testament and expounding it as being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The apostles' teaching would, would include the, the teaching from the Old Testament. But it would also include teaching they received directly from Jesus himself. I mean, Jesus told them in John chapter 14, verse 26, that the Holy Spirit would come and teach them all things and bring to remembrance things that he said, that they might be able to teach others. But friends, we have the final form of the apostles' teaching as recorded in the New Testament. All of the 27 books of the New Testament are written either by the apostles or by those whom the apostles instructed. The apostle Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament letters. The apostle John wrote five books. The apostle Peter wrote two letters. The apostle James wrote one letter. The apostle Matthew wrote one book. The others were written by men who were close associates, who were travel partners of the apostles, including the author of this book of Acts. Luke. All that to say that devotion to the apostles teaching today doesn't mean devotion to a specific man who calls himself an apostle. There are no apostles today. No men alive who have seen the risen Christ with their own eyes. And that's one of the qualifications for apostleship that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 1. Or that this same Peter notes earlier in Acts chapter 1. When they go look for someone to take Judas's place as an apostle, they say the person has had to have been an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. Ain't nobody living today old enough to have been an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. No, we, we, we are devoted to the apostles teaching, not by calling ourselves apostles. You won't find one today. We devote ourselves to the apostles teaching by devoting ourselves to God's authoritative word as communicated by the apostles who were filled with God's spirit so that we might have our minds filled and our hearts fueled to worship the true and living God. But it takes some things to devote yourself to to God's word. It takes humility. It takes humility to be a congregation devoted to God's word. I mean, consider here with this first church, These apostles weren't teachers by trade. They didn't go to the finest seminaries. They hadn't watched hours upon hours of TED Talks. They weren't members of the local Jerusalem Toastmasters Club. What qualified them to be teachers of any kind, especially of God's word? I mean, the people who filled the first church easily could have wondered that. Some among them were probably better educated than the apostles, many of whom, like Peter, were fishermen. Some were probably older, probably wiser, had more experiences than than these young bucks. Yet they 
all humbly submitted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They realized God had raised these men up to proclaim his word and not them. And that their authority as apostles ultimately came from him. It was ultimately his word, not theirs. Since it still takes humility to devote yourself to God's word, to the teaching of God's word. Not taught by apostles, they've all passed on from the scene, but taught by God's appointed leaders now, pastors, whom God has specifically given the charge to preach the word in season and out of season. Right now, the Lord has given Warner and I as the pastors of this church. But, but friends, we don't presume that that means that, that we are the smartest or the wisest or the most gifted people in this congregation. But we are the ones the Lord has raised up and you have recognized as your pastors, as the men primarily charged with the ministry of the word here. I praise God for the way you all have have humbly submitted to our instruction. So long as our instruction comes from God's word. Friends, no one of you should follow us, should listen to us, should believe us simply because we have a title. No, follow us as we follow Christ. Listen to us as we point you to look at the scriptures. Have your Bibles open as we speak, even now, but also your hearts open to follow the Lord's instruction through us. I think specifically of of, of some of our, our sisters this morning who demonstrate a humility to sit under God's word. Man, some of you sisters know your Bibles extremely well. You can communicate what the Bible teaches extremely well. I mean, to keep it real, some of you may be able to preach better than your pastors can. But you recognize that the Bible holds out the office of pastor and the function of preaching to specific men. And so though you might have immense understanding and great giftings and even some desire, you humbly submit your will to God's word. And you gladly sit under the preaching of God's word week after week. Praise God for that good gift of humility. It takes humility to devote yourself to God's word. It takes perseverance to be a congregation devoted to God's word. It takes perseverance, a certain doggedness to to commit to the scriptures even when you don't want to. The world, the flesh, and the devil all conspire to make it so that we can't stomach God's word sometimes. Perhaps you feel that way even now as I'm preaching. You're bored by God's word dismissive of God's word, angry at God's word. Why is that? It could be that you don't love God's word, don't want to hear it, don't want to live by it because you're not a Christian. I know that sounds harsh and direct, especially in an age of widespread affirmation. You shouldn't confront or question anybody about anything. I think that's a very dangerous way to live. One that may leave people deceived on their way to destruction. The Bible says 
Examine yourselves to see if you be of the faith. Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse five. A godly person, a Christian should desire God's word, should long for it, should love it. And if that's not the case at all. Then there's need for some deep self-examination. Friends, what does your view of God's word, of the teaching of God's word, reveal about your spiritual state this morning? But you could very well be a Christian, a committed Christian and still struggle at being bored or dismissive or angry at God's word at times. But why is that? Well, saints, it's part of spiritual warfare. If it's the word that gives life, that sustains life, that convicts of sin, that comforts in grief, that encourages through trials, that emboldens through battles, that strengthens our faith, then Satan would love nothing more than to keep you from God's word. He hates us and wants to hinder our growth. He wants to kill our faith. And the first step is to strike at God's word. Isn't that what he did in the Garden of Eden with Eve? Attack God's word and Eve's submission to it? But what's the solution? What's the solution to, to this problem of not desiring and even being dismissive of against God's word? Well, the solution is to devote yourself to being devoted to God's word. That is, set your mind to being committed to reading and studying and sitting under the word, even when you don't feel like it, even when everything in you is raging against it. And pray that God would change your heart towards him and his word. I remember early on uh, as a Christian, as a new believer, the, the Lord gave me a voracious appetite for his word. I was devouring the Bible. But at some point, a few months in, every time I read the Bible, there would be unwanted, blasphemous thoughts about God and words that would come to mind. I don't think I told anybody about it. I was embarrassed. I'm a Christian. I can't say that kind of thing, right? I wasn't mature enough to, to share struggles with other brothers and sisters. I hated that these words, these thoughts would come to mind every time I opened God's word, every time I sat under God's word. But, but you know what I did not do? Stop reading the Bible. I, I, I prayed constantly that the Lord would remove these thoughts, remove these words, but I kept reading. I kept praying and kept reading and kept praying and kept reading. And over time, the Lord removed the thoughts. The Lord lifted those thoughts. Saints, don't allow struggles or resistance to the teaching of God's word cause you to abandon God's word. The breakthrough beyond that resistance might just be in the next sermon or the next Bible study or or the next devotion. Don't short circuit what God might be doing as you continue to commit yourself to God's word, even when you don't want to be devoted to the word and don't let anything turn you away from it. Even yourself. If you're struggling this morning to, to love and to live under God's word, Be a better Christian than I was. Talk to somebody about it. Share those struggles with other brothers and sisters this morning. Come talk to me after service. We are here to help one another, not to condemn one another. Being a congregation devoted to God's word 
not only requires humility and perseverance, it also requires some prioritizing. Some prioritizing. Being devoted to the teaching of God's word means allowing it to be our main instructor. You know, all kinds of things are teaching us. We're being formed as disciples, as learners by a myriad of voices. Social media forms us. News media forms us. Experiences form us, form us. But we are to have the scriptures as our ultimate authority, as our ultimate teacher. What does the Bible say is to be our overriding concern? So friends, we can talk about anything but under the headship of scripture. We can talk about gender and race and abortion and marriage and sex and drugs and singleness and parenting. None of those are off limits, but they are not standalone discussion topics to to, to leave the Bible off somewhere else as we talk about these kind of weighty things. No, we're Christians. And as members of a Christian church, we bring the Bible to bear on everything. What do we believe the Bible teaches about this or that issue? And what the Bible says is authoritative. I mean, that's what we pledge in our church covenant. We will submit to the authority of the scriptures as the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. In how we believe, what we believe and how we live. When we leave service on Sundays, we don't leave the scriptures in this room. Now, whatever we learn here is meant to inform how we think and live the rest of this week. When we leave our quiet times in the mornings, that sweet time with the Lord over coffee. We don't leave the scriptures in our bedrooms or our living rooms. No, whatever we learn that morning is meant to feel and fuel and inform what we think and how we live the rest of the day. But prioritizing the teaching of the scriptures also helps to to reorient our hearts and and our minds to see the the priority or the main thing in the scriptures. Each day, each, each week, We have things brought to the forefront of our minds, competing for attention as most important. But but have you noticed that the Bible isn't laid out topically? There's no heading of scripture for social issues or personal problems. No, the main focus of the Bible is God's glory as revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. And so giving ourselves to the teaching of the Bible is to give ourselves to being shaped by the Bible to value what's most valuable, what's most important, the Lord himself. That's to say the scriptures aren't meant to be used merely in a utilitarian way. Only good insofar as they provide what's most practically useful for me. That's what some Christians expect. What some churches promote as good biblical teaching. And so the Bible is held up every Sunday, yes, as authoritative, but really only in certain ways, right? The Bible is used to to teach five ways to be a better dad, Uh, four steps to becoming financially stable, Uh, three keys to dealing with difficult people. Friends, praise God that the Bible is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction on a bunch of different things. But the priority of the Bible is on Jesus Christ, on his sacrificial death for us and how that transforms everything. And you can be a good dad 
who's fiscally responsible and amenable to people and yet an enemy of God. Amen. Your sins indebting you to him and thus headed to hell as a punishment. No, we need to prioritize Christ and his cross. How he died for our sins and rose for our salvation and how through faith in him, we can die to all our old sinful ways and live new lives as new creations in Jesus. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We don't need a few steps to become better people. We need the blood of Jesus to make us new people so that we can be better dads and better wives, better husbands, better classmates. We need the Bible to teach us. The teaching of the Bible passes everything through Jesus. Things before Jesus point forward to him. Things after Jesus point back to him. He is the focal point of all the scriptures. So to prioritize the Bible in our lives is to prioritize Christ as the one the Bible shines a light on for our salvation and for our sanctification. As we live as Christians in the different areas the Lord has given us, has assigned us to. I'm saying it's very practically. That's why we here at Temple Hills Baptist Church most normally walk through whole books of the Bible in our preaching. We don't do many topical sermon series. Because we want the Bible to set the agenda for what we talk about each week and to point our eyes to Jesus. We don't feel the need to be slaves to every news headline. To have a sermon on every specific possible topic out there. That's not to say things aren't important. But we'd be herky-jerky kind of going crazy trying to respond to every single issue. No, we believe that on every topic and in every time, Christ is all satisfying. And that as we work through the whole counsel of the word of Christ, wherever we are in the Bible, we find it speaks to us where we are and provides us what we most need. So while this thing kind of pops up in the news and like, we got to have a sermon on that. The God of all creation who foreordained his son, Jesus Christ, thousands of years ago knows what you need. He's not caught off guard by pandemics or problems or politicians. He is the God of all history, of all creation. And he knows that in these times where things are crazy and and, and there's political unrest and social unrest, what you need is a sermon from the minor prophets. How's that going to help me? It's God's word. God's word is always beneficial. God's word always points us to our primary problem, that we rebelled against Christ. And to our primary hope that Jesus Christ has killed our sin in his death and risen for us and given us hope. That's not to say we dismiss all those other things, but we filter them through Jesus. How does the cross of Christ help me to live in these uncertain times? We devote ourselves to God's word. We aim to devote ourselves to God's word by prioritizing God's word in our lives. I mean, consider all the ways we've intentionally tried to to do that here in our church. Now think of the, the structure of our services. Everything we do is because God's word commands it. From the singing, to the reading, to the praying, to the preaching. And even within the elements in the service, we want to be guided by God's word. We try to pick songs that fit the theme of the sermon passage for the morning. 
we pick scripture readings to that same end. So, so notice how the scripture reading that, that Warner read for us earlier from Deuteronomy 4 focused on teaching God's word. And we unapologetically give the most room in the service to the preaching of God's word. Believing that the proclamation of the word is the most central and most life-giving part of the church. Friends, I love what we, we did last week. We're kind of serving our community and, and doing things like that. That's great. That's not our primary thing. Amen. Right? The proclamation of the word is the focus, right? Is the primary thing. Right? Even how we meet it reflects our devotion to the word. Yeah, what we do when we meet, but, but even how we meet reflects our devotion to the word. We are committed to being a single service, single site church. Now some of y'all are like, of course you are. You're like 20 of us here. What else you going to do? <laughs> Why would you split this up? But it's not our size that drives our structure. Amen. It's the scriptures. We believe the Bible calls all believers in a church to gather together at the same time in the same place. Amen. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week as we talk about the, the, the fellowship of believers. We're all called to be together to hear the same word together. Now think about how our budget prioritizes a devotion to God's word. The biggest part of our very small budget goes towards paying the pastor. And saints, I think that's a good thing. Not because I'm greedy, but because God's word is important. Amen. This feels uncomfortable talking about it, undoubtedly, but, but pastors often should be paid by congregations. Yes, pastors too often can be driven by greed and prey on congregations, sick themselves on congregations for their own personal wealth. Call those pastors out, please do. But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Right? Bad pastors, greedy pastors, don't take away from the Bible's command to pay your pastors. Amen. Especially, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 tells us, those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the laborer deserves his wages. Amen. Congregations like ours recognize the immense spiritual importance of having God's word faithfully taught to them by paying pastors to set aside their time to study God's word. I'm grateful to God for you, for, for your understanding of that. I don't take it lightly. I don't want to be a slacker in it. So the, the main part of every one of my weeks is given to studying God's word, to teach and preach it in various settings, whether that's Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Wednesday nights or other things, to, to giving to the study for the proclamation of God's word. Trusting that the return will be plentiful. That the return will be abundant even if we don't immediately see the impact. I mean, spiritual maturity doesn't happen overnight. But just think of how you've grown as a Christian, not just in what you know, but in how you act, how you respond to things and to people, and how that's been shaped by countless sermons from faithful pastors who've labor to teach you. You know, it's often not one grand slam, life-changing sermon for the accumulated teaching Amen. and your accumulated listening of God's word over years, over decades that transforms you. Amen. 
You are the Christian you are today through the proclamation of God's word over the years. Young people, I pray that's instructive for you. You may not get or understand everything that's being taught here, but don't tune out. The Lord can tally up all those little tidbits of understanding and over time give you greater understanding of his word. Trust. Trust what you do understand. And ask God to grow your understanding. That's what we all long for, to grow in our knowledge of and love for God's word. That's one of the primary marks of a biblical church. But it doesn't just happen apart from devoting ourselves to God's word as a church, to listening to the preaching and teaching of God's word, to to studying it ourselves, to living it out by obeying it throughout the week, using God's word as we counsel and encourage and exhort one another each day. The first church gave themselves to God's word. So must every church now, every true church. Doing good works is great. That doesn't make us a church. Feeding the homeless, providing backpacks, all that is great. But the community can do that. If need be, the, the, the county can do that. What marks us all specifically as a church, as a true church of the living God, is teaching and submission to the living word of God, the Bible. It is our very life. It's what ignites us and what nurtures our faith. Saints, let's continue to pray and to pursue being a church constantly devoted to the word of God so that the Lord might use our lives for his glory to all the nations and all our neighbors. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that gives counsel, for your word that gives life, for your word that rebukes us, for your word that refreshes us. Lord, we pray that you keep us from prioritizing other things above your word and that we be a congregation submitted to your word in deed, in thought, in devotion. Help us to love your word, Lord, and to live under, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.